Welcome to this week's episode of the Real Science Podcast. I'm the host, Josh McIntyre. So this week I've got stories about using a dead person's sperm and whether or not you can do that. Um, specifically, the parents want to use their son's sperm who died in a skiing accident. I've also got stories about Starlink, SpaceX's new potential internet adventure. And I've got a story about Washington State's new law to decompose people. So... That's interesting. We'll get into all that. I'll start just right now. So the first story about um, these parents who want to use their, it's pointed out that he's a West Point cadet, and they want to use his sperm. And a judge has ruled in their favor. So Peter Zhu, um, who was in the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, um, he passed away, it says, in a skiing accident on February 27th. and he was 21 years old and because he was an organ donor he was his body was kept alive until march 1st and then his parents obtained a court order to retrieve some of his sperm so that's odd at least i think i'll get to why maybe it's less odd in a second um but these the the parents want to retrieve his uh sperm to potentially have grandchildren it sounds like so there's a quote from the parents says Without obtaining sperm from Peter's body, we will never be able to help realize Peter's dream of bringing a child into this world. Um, that's his parents, who are Young Min and Monica Zhu. Um, they wrote, this is in their uh, filing to the state Supreme Court in Westchester County. Um, and they say that it's uh, their one and only um, chance for fulfilling Peter's wishes to preserving his incredible legacy. So the... The story came out, and this is uh, in the New York Times, which I'll post a, a link to this this article. Um, and the story is about the judge ruling on it and saying that they're allowed to. Um, and the quote from the judge says, "Who, if anyone, should be able to, should be given the authority to determine the disposition of Peter's genetic material now preserved in the sperm bank?" And so they say specifically that uh, Peter, the son, Mr. Zhu, had not authorized the retrieval of his sperm, but since he was a, an organ donor, um, it's not. Kind of completely out of the realm of possibility. Also, um, the parents cite many conversations they had with him personally about how he wanted to raise a child someday, and that this is basically his way to do that since he's passed away. Now, there's no mention of a girlfriend or anything that Peter had, or any or a wife for that matter, or any kind of a relationship. So we're not really sure what's going on there. Um, there's some some more issues we'll get into in a second. There's one uh, quote that I want to read from the judge, which I find entertaining um the person's peter would have intended to make the decisions with with respect to the preservation and disposition of the procreative fluids at issue so this is the judge talking about setting two laws in regards to uh, his parents uh, using his sperm Um, he goes on to say that even though peter did not expressly state that he wanted his sperm to be used for reproductive purposes his parents should choose to do so in the future it would not do any violence to his memory um his parents didn't decline any kind of comment um to the lawyer or anybody else um they haven't said anything else at the time sounds like they don't actually have any concrete plans um as far as how to move forward um with that and a bioethicist named lauren sydney flicker who works at uh, albert einstein college of medicine in the bronx um, says that it's the request to retrieve a person, dead person sperm are shockingly rare. Uh, most 
major medical centers don't actually know that it can happen, but there are requests a couple times a year that at least that she seems to know. Most of those requests are from a deceased, from a romantic partner of the deceased. So husband dies for some reason and the wife wants to retrieve his sperm to then have IVF from that point on. Um, and there are possible, obviously, ways to do it, but nobody's tracking. There's no database to know kind of what numbers it's in, if it's in you know, the hundreds or the thousands or, or more so or whatever. Um, but that there is an important ethical debate around using a deceased person's um, uh, sperm. Obviously, I think it's a bit more straightforward if it's a romantic partner. Um, and so the ethical debate for this person um, from Lauren Sidney Flicker um, says that it's different for different people, but in, it is, a, is it a greater ethical burden to prevent someone from having an opportunity to be a father by passing along their genetic material? Or is it a greater ethical burden to have a man father a child without his consent that he wouldn't be around to raise? Obviously, there's unique challenges with this particular case uh, because the parents are going to have, according to uh, the person from Bronx, from Albert Einstein University, a really hard time finding a surrogate. Um, they're saying the most fertility clinics basically just won't, probably won't work with them because of ethical grounds that they're using their sons and they'll be worried that they're just trying to replace their son. Um, and most people just won't do that. They think that they're doing kind of out of grief. Um, without having kind of clear ideas of what's going on. But yeah, also they're going to have to go and find a, a willing surrogate as well as perform the in vitro fertilization. And none of this will be covered by insurance, so it's going to be a lot of money out of pocket. Um, IVF, um, if you aren't aware, can cost up to about 20 grand on its own. Um, so that's quite expensive because you need to get the eggs. And there's a whole long process of retrieving eggs from, from people, um, from women, obviously. And then doing the actual procedure and then re-implanting it um, is, is a, quite a long process. I think retrieving the eggs as well on its own is like a 10 or 12 week program of a bunch of uh, injections of hormones straight into the abdomen. So that in of itself is quite a complex little situation. So they do talk about how most uh, hospitals will agree to retrieve um, sperm from a dead, dead person, but they usually won't store it for very long because they don't want to be creating a child again. Creating a child out of grief is what the big worry is here. Um, and generally, fertility clinics, like I said before, will frown upon um, a couple that if they've lost a child um, using sperm uh, to create a new child because they don't want to say if someone's lost a child that they're just having a child to replace the one they've lost. Um, but they also, this person also goes on to say, you could probably almost always find someone to say yes, um, but an ethically savvy clinic would probably say no and probably challenge them. So again, it's just an interesting question that these, these parents are using their son's sperm to potentially create grandchildren, which presumably they would take care of as well. Um, and it's just kind of where the state of our, our science is at at the moment as far as how possible that is and kind of what uh, what's possible and what's what's going on and these kind of ethical questions that are going to keep coming up probably in the near future. Um, hopefully stuff like this doesn't happen. Obviously losing a child is quite um, traumatic and horrible. So, But yeah, it's just an interesting story, an interesting kind of ethical question. So I'll move on to the next story uh, just now. All right, so the second story is about SpaceX and their new Starlink internet satellites. So last Thursday night, um, 
SpaceX launched about 60 internet communication satellites from Cape Canaveral in Florida. Um, it's the Air Force Base in Florida. Um, and about 270 miles above the Earth, the cluster of satellites spread out from the rocket itself, and they went off into orbit. And so what these are is a collection of, again, 60 identical satellites that are part of the Starlink program. And what they're, they're designed to do and what they're supposed to do um, is a, they're, um, they're going to give internet basically to the entire world potentially. Now, it's obviously not going to be for free. It'll be a money-making program for them. But again, quite a different one to in the past. So these 60 satellites are following on from a couple of prototypes that went up um, a few months ago. They're called Tintin A and Tintin B. Um, they went up and we're just testing out kind of the possibility and see how all this, this system kind of works. So these are the first, first again, 60 satellites. So this payload uh, was about 30,000 pounds. So it's the heaviest um, launch that SpaceX ever has ever done. So that's a pretty good deal, a pretty big deal for them um, to be able to launch so much more um, more payload at once. And instead of just, you know, normally they just deliver stuff. They've been delivering stuff kind of to the, um, to the International Space Station because they got that contract a few years ago, which is great. Um, but now again, they're their own, their own customer in this process, spending their own time and money to send these satellites up. And there's a good reason for that. There's a potential for them to make a whole lot of money. Um, the satellites themselves weigh about 500, p 500 pounds a piece. Um, there's a single solar array. Um, and basically what they do is they just communicate up and down with the ground, but they're only about 270 miles up. So there are other internet um, satellite services that uh, that exist, but they're ge they're geostationary communication satellites, and they're at about twenty two thousand two hundred miles above the surface, um, which is obviously quite high. But then because they're geostationary, because they're at that um, that altitude, basically, what happens is that they don't move, so they can provide satellite internet satellite. Uh, so they can provide internet to that one location that they cover, um, but not very much, but it's not generally a huge area necessarily for kind of a satellite coverage, but it's also got a lot of latency. There's a lot of um, time between sending the signal up to the satellite for it to send it to, to wherever, wherever else it's going and back and forth. So that connection is quite slow. The um, article says that, you know, it's okay if you wanted to watch Netflix, which sure, maybe, because um, everything can buffer a little bit. But if you're trying to have, um, again, the example they give is if you're trying to play an online game, it would be really slow. Again, if you're trying to do like a, uh, a Skype interview or something like that, it would probably be not work very well. Um, but it is something, but it's also extremely expensive. Um, so that's the other issue. And again, it's it's not, it doesn't seem to work that well. And so the idea behind the Starlink um, satellite system is only about 270 to 710 miles above the surface. So they're a lot closer than that 22,000 feet, um, or <laughs> 22,000 miles rather, not 22,000 feet, 22,000 miles. Um, so because they're a lot closer, you're going to reduce latency a lot, um, which just means the signal's going to move that much faster and be able to transfer, um, transport data faster. And um, SpaceX says that it should be comparable to kind of a based cable or even potentially a fiber optic network. So incredibly fast internet um, for most of what we've got today. Um, they don't exactly give like a 4G or 5G rating or something like that, but just still 
comparable to fiber networks would mean it would be a lot faster and a lot more um, useful. The drawback to this kind of system, though, is that you need a lot more satellites. So right now, again, they put 60 satellites up, and then the the vice president uh, from the engineering vehicle engineering at SpaceX, Mark Junsko, Junkosa, I'm butchering his name, says that with 12 additional launches of 60 more satellites apiece, um, they could provide good coverage to the whole of the United States. 24 more launches, they'd be able to put enough satellites to cover in most populated areas, and 30 more launches, they'd be able to cover the entire world. So that's a lot of satellites. Also, because of the, the height, the altitude that they would be at, that means that these satellites are going to be constantly coming back out and burning up into the atmosphere, um, which means they would have to be constantly replaced. But one of the things, the reason they're doing this, and what I kind of alluded to earlier, is that the rocket launching business that SpaceX runs currently is expected to grow to about $3 billion a year in profit. Um, so that's you know still a lot of money to play with. But if you could provide internet to the world, potentially, they're thinking that could actually bring in $30 billion a year, which would then give them a lot of money and revenue on the side to develop other more advanced rocket ships. Um, uh, Elon Musk as well says we think they would be a key and stepping stone in the way to establishing a self-sustaining city on Mars and a base on the moon. So potentially a lot of play money and a lot of like kind of research and development money from having a system something like this. Also, it's just another stream of revenue for Elon Musk and for SpaceX to start bringing in money and start again just ramping up that R&D and ramping up kind of what's going on. Obviously, there's competitors, um, and in Starlink's competitors right now are a company called OneWeb, uh, Telestat, and also Amazon. Obviously, Jeff Bezos has got money to play with too, and he's also working on trying to get to Mars as well. So it's potentially just to get another way for Amazon to rule the world, um, but we'll see. Maybe it's a good thing. Um, you know, Potentially, if you could get internet to the entire planet and let people be connected, you know, maybe it's the dream of the internet age that is, you know, from before as well, when we thought that everyone could have a chat and everyone could connect and everyone could do stuff together, that you would have a harmonization among the world, that if you could give everyone internet and get everyone um, the ability to see the same stuff, that everyone would be friends and be friendly with each other. So far, they would say that hasn't happened. People tend to kind of silo off and segment themselves off um, a lot. Um but we'll see. Maybe it could be something against the the Great Firewall in China as well. That could be interesting for China to try and tackle with, see how they respond um, to internet coming from SpaceX. Um, nonetheless, it's an interesting venture, and it'd be interesting to see how it goes. Because um, certainly laying out physical fiber optic cables across an entire country is quite difficult and quite expensive. And replacing and upgrading satellites could potentially actually be easier than laying out miles and miles of fiber optic cable through large countries like the U.S. or like Australia, which has been struggling so hard to lay out fiber optic cable across the country. Um, but Musk also says that other companies that have attempted doing this in, in the past um, have generally gone bankrupt. And he says, I believe none that have successfully gone into operation without going bankrupt um, and he says he hopes that they'll be successful, but uh, it's far from a sure thing. So we'll just have to see what happens. Um, the article also goes on and talks about uh, how there's about 2,000 operational satellites around Earth at the moment, um, and that, that 
that number will hugely multiply if Starlink actually gets kind of up and running. Again, they're talking about several thousand satellites just for that one kind of company, basically, to operate at full full capacity. Um, but that it would be crazy. And he says, all, Elon Musk also admit, uh, admits and says that a majority of the satellites will in orbit will then be SpaceX if things go according to plan. And obviously that's a huge deal for them um, from, you know, an operational standpoint, but also a branding standpoint too. Um, so that's quite interesting. But then also, like I said, the satellites, because they're at such a low orbit, means that they're going to re-enter the atmosphere and burn up. The problem is some of these these first 60 satellites that went up through the day, they don't actually won't actually be completely burned up. Um, about 95% of the Starlink satellites will burn up on re-entry, um, but you would still end up with about 25 pounds of debris. Um, potentially coming in, and particularly it's an ion thruster um, that's part of the propulsion system and the steel reaction tubes that help keep the spacecraft itself pointed in the correct direction. Um, and in a letter that the uh, SpaceX sent to the uh, Federal Communications Commission that said that, that future satellites would um, not have this kind of uh, issue and that they would be smaller so that they would burn up completely on reentry. Um, but again, the possibility of one of these crashing down and hitting either a house or a car or a person for that matter is quite low considering most of the planet is ocean, um, but, but also potentially could be quite scary if you're in a boat and one of them lands near you or on your boat. So uh, interesting, but nonetheless, the, the, the idea behind it is quite exciting. Um, again, to give internet to everybody to then help people learn on their own, just having access to you know things like Wikipedia and stuff like that for people to teach themselves. There's plenty of stories out there of people using the internet for good to connect and to really see how the rest of the world works. So potentially quite interesting, potentially quite crazy. Um, but yeah, we'll just have to see what happens over the next few years. Um, Elon Musk seems to be doing nothing but crazy things, and a bunch of them seem to work out, and some of them don't. So we'll just have to see how this goes. All right, we'll move on to the next story just now. All right, so the last story is one that I find interesting um, just because I have an interest in death, I guess. I don't know, disposing of bodies. Anyways, um, Washington becomes the first state to legalize composting of humans, um, which I think from reading the story is maybe a bit of an overstatement from what they're saying, but basically there was a law passed by Governor Jay Inslee um, last week legalizing human composting the law doesn't go into effect until may of 2020 um but currently like in most places in washington bodies can either be cremated or buried and so the process of what they're calling recomposition provides a third option that speeds up the process of turning dead bodies into soil um a practice colloquially known as known as human composting because you're composting human bodies um there's uh, the state spon bill's sponsor, Senator, uh, State Senator Jamie Peterson, says it's an environmentally friendly way of disposing of human bodies. Um, it's an about time we apply some technology to allow some technology to be applied in this universal human experience because we think that people should have the freedom to determine for themselves how they like their body to be disposed of. Um, again, human bodies, I've talked about this before when I talked about um, body farms a couple weeks ago. And human bodies are interesting because obviously you walk around, everything's fine, no big deal. You worry about, you know, if you if someone said slapped a biohazard sticker on something, you would worry about being harmed from it. But after people die, they are technically biohazard. And they, like if you take blood samples from someone, 
and you store them and then you want to get rid of them, they are a biohazard. But it's just blood, which all of us are full of, but it's biohazard because it might be infectious. Um, but even if you know it's not, still biohazard. Still have to treat it, still has to go get incinerated somewhere, which is kind of endlessly fascinating to me for some reason, just because I think it's kind of so silly. Um, I mean, it makes sense. Obviously, you don't want to spread disease. We don't want to have everything going around, but it is kind of funny to me. Um, nonetheless, what this um, bill is directly focused on is a company called Recompose, um, and they pr talk about the process of turning a dead body into soil. And so the way this works, the body is covered in natural materials like straw or wood chips over the course of about three to seven weeks. Um, and then thanks to microbial activity, it breaks down into soil. So that's in itself is quite interesting. Um, so it's just a pretty straightforward process. And they talk about it while, that while the body is being broken down, families of the deceased can come and visit the facility um, and then ultimately receive the soil remains and then determine what they want to do with them for them. I mean, you could pour Grandpa Joe out into the garden and plant some tomatoes. Um, potentially you could go and pour them out into a forest. It sounds like they're, they're just soil at that point. So you can really do whatever you want, but it does open up another alternative. Again, they talked about some people donate their bodies to body farms because they kind of see it as a sky burial or maybe a more natural death. Potentially also, hopefully you're, you're serving, um, a scientific purpose, um, because people that get stuffed, the bodies that get stuffed in trunks are maybe not so natural. Um, but there are bodies that at body farms that are left kind of out in the open. Um, again, it's, it's a complicated subject, but it's interesting to think about. Um, but this again, just allows you to turn into soil as opposed to being buried in a casket where most of the times I know most of the United States and a lot of other places as well, that when you're put into a casket, because a body is biohazard because it is actually potentially dangerous for the environment. And like I said, liquids like blood are considered dangerous. You can't just put the person in the ground. So what happens is they extract a lot of the blood and they pump bodies full of formaldehyde, which keeps you preserved, which makes you look nice for a funeral, for an open casket funeral. Sure, but still have to apply a bunch of makeup and stuff as well. But then they keep the body preserved, but then that body goes into a wooden casket, potentially covered in pillows because you wouldn't want the dead person to be uncomfortable when they wake back up in the zombie apocalypse. And then that casket goes into a giant uh, concrete box so that none of that person's liquids, especially the, the formaldehyde as well, can leak into the environment and potentially damage the water table, which is something we do need to worry about um, if there's water close by. Or better yet, if you're buried in someplace like um, Louisiana, where the water table is at like four feet, so relatively shallow, they can't actually bury coffins in the ground. You have to have a mausoleum, which is on top of the ground, which then costs anywhere from twelve, you know, ten thousand, twelve thousand dollars, pretty quick, if not up to twenty thousand um, dollars. Which is also something they touch on in this article as well. Um, they talk about how the average cost of a burial can cost anywhere from eight thousand to twenty-five thousand. Um, cremation can cost up to six thousand dollars and that this recomposed company is hoping to charge somewhere around five thousand five hundred dollars so coming in cheaper than everybody um, but again it's a really interesting idea because also cremation um, releases about a uses about a metric ton of carbon into the atmosphere when you're doing that for each person um, i'm assuming that's not only just the person's carbon because hopefully people don't weigh a metric ton um, but also just the energy it takes 
but also just the energy it takes to break someone down and all the things that go into that, whereas this process should be quite simple and quite environmentally friendly. And like I said, it uses about an eighth of the en- eighth of the energy for creation, um, which is, again, quite neat and quite useful. Um, and again, they're using natural materials, straw and wood chips and stuff like that, um, to then break the body down over a period of weeks, which then gives people kind of a time to mourn. And then, yeah, you can um, just get soil out and you can do whatever the soil you want with. So again, go and pour them out in the backyard and plant tomatoes or plant them in a farm or go spread them maybe in a forest or something like that. Um, you can still throw them in the ocean if you want, just like ashes. But yeah, it's just a different um, different kind of thing. So it, it's it's just a new option. There are, um, they do talk about how there's some other, um, some states in the U.S. as well that allow caskets not allow bodies not to be filled with um formaldehyde and the, the caskets just to be pushed in the ground by themselves not in a giant concrete box um which is different as well but again if you're going to worry about impacting the water table that's something you have to keep in mind so yeah it's just it's an interesting story it is something that we're going to have to deal with at some point because cemeteries and things have become more formal in the last you know a couple cent in the last century or so and we're eventually going to run out of land because people are going to keep being born and people are going to keep dying. And so something's going to happen with the dead bodies and putting people in cemeteries is going to fill up a lot of space um, eventually if you want to just be kind of stark about it. So it's, yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting idea and interesting concept. And we'll see kind of how it goes and see if anybody else takes it up. It sounds like the, the, the process itself is quite simple and it's something that's been used by um, farmers for... I don't know, it doesn't say how long, but it's just basically to get rid of um, of farm animals and stuff that have passed away for whatever reason that they're using that kind of same process, um, but with people. And that the first kind of study that was done with it was about six people that donated their body to science to be used in that way. um, And again, up in Washington and Seattle. And so they set up a small group to study and see kind of how best to do it to go forward with um, with this process and with this company to make it work. So we'll see how it goes. And it'd be interesting nonetheless in the next few years to see kind of what happens. So with that, that's enough from me today. Um, if you like the show, hopefully you did, uh, give me a rating and subscribe. I'm on iTunes and Stitcher and, uh, Spotify now as well. So head over and any of those, give me a rating and review. Let me know what you think. Uh, also, if you want to get in touch, check out my website. I'm on scifiction.com, S-C-I-F-I-X-I-O-N.com. There's a contact page, or you can shoot me an email at therealsciencepodcast at scifiction.com. Real science, the Real Science Podcast, all one word, at scifiction.com. Feel free to shoot me an email um, or get on me at Twitter. I'm uh, at McIntyre Science. Or if you want to rate, if you want to support the show and help me keep making it, Um, and maybe help me put more episodes up on SoundCloud in the future, Um, head over to Patreon. I'm at patreon.com slash scifiction, and maybe give a few bucks so that I can start paying for a SoundCloud subscription so that I can post more than about five or six shows at a time. But yeah, hopefully you liked it, hopefully you enjoyed it, and uh, talk to you guys next week. Bye.